Well, we resume our regular broadcast this Sunday to return to our study of the Gospel of John. You can now throw out your Christmas tree or whatever else you hang up. So. John chapter 1. It's been a few weeks, so to kind of recap, remember John tells us in chapter 20 of his gospel why he wrote it. He says, I selected these specific things. Remember, the gospels are not designed to be full historical accounts of Jesus' life. They are specifically grabbing certain things that happened during Jesus' life, certain things he did or said that will communicate the point they're trying to, to make. And John says, these things, I've selected these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah of Israel, that he's the, you might believe that he's the son of God, and that through believing in him, you might have life. And so when he writes this gospel, he starts with an 18-verse introduction, and he introduces us to who Jesus is. He says, Jesus is the eternal word, the true light. He's the God who became a human being and gave grace and truth to all who received him. But I mean, John doesn't presume that you're just going to believe his little 18-verse testimony all by itself. And so he declared in verse 14 that it wasn't just him that, that saw the glory. He says, we, there's, a, there's some group of we that saw Christ's glory. And so in verse 19, he starts by introducing us to one of those we, John the Baptist. And starting with John the Baptist, John the gospel writer spends the rest of his gospel calling witness after witness to give their personal testimony to who Jesus was. And so this morning, we're going to continue to look at John the Baptist's testimony, his evidence for Jesus being God, the Messiah, and the one who gives us life. So verse 29, and we will go through verse 34 this morning. Verse 29 says, the next day... John sees Jesus coming unto him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. It says the next day, so the events of verses 19 through 28, remember that's when he spoke to a delegation of priests and Levites from Jerusalem who want to know, what are you doing out here? Like, why are you doing this? Like, who are you? What authority? Like, what personage in, in Scripture has been prophesied that you would be out here doing this when you're not one of us, basically? And John declared very clearly, I'm not the Messiah. But he did say the Messiah... He's already here. He is the eternal Son of God, and He's already in your midst. Well, it tells us that in verse 29, the day after that conversation with those religious leaders, that Jesus comes to visit John the Baptist. I don't know if it was an official visit. I don't know if he was just coming to say hi to his cousin. I don't know if he was just in the area, but he's coming to see John the Baptist for some reason. Now, he's not coming to be baptized because Jesus, at this point in time, has already been baptized. In fact, he's already been out in the desert for his 40 days of temptation, and he's already started his public ministry. So, what's interesting is well, the Bible doesn't tell us why Jesus comes to see John this time. When we get to heaven, we can find out, but we don't know here. But what we do know is that when John the Baptist sees his cousin approaching, 
Rather than simply saying hi to his cousin, John makes a public announcement. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Behold means look, listen up, pay attention. So it's not something he just says quietly. He's got disciples. He's got people who've come out to hear him preach. Maybe some people to come out and get baptized. But this group of people are here. And he tells all of them, listen up. I've got something important to say. Behold, he says, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Stop paying attention to me and listening to me. And look at that guy right over there, because that's the Lamb of God. Now, this is a new title that John the Baptist gives to Jesus. Lamb of God, in particular, it would mean God's Lamb. Uh, we studied what it means that Jesus is the Word. We studied what it means that He's the light in John so far. So what does this mean, that He's God's Lamb? Well, the first mention of the word lamb in the Bible is Genesis 22, verse 7. When Isaac asks his father Abraham, he says, hey, Dad, we... I see the wood for the sacrifice. You know, I, I see everything else we've got, but where's the lamb? That's the first time the word lamb is used in the Bible. It's associated with sacrifice. And of course, Father Abraham responds by saying, God shall provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. What a weird way to phrase it. Like you to say, well, God will provide a lamb that we could sacrifice. Or God himself will be the one who provides a lamb for us. But that's not what he says. He said, God shall provide himself a lamb. He'll be the lamb. And so the earliest association in the scripture of a lamb is with sacrifice, and in particular, God's promise to be a sacrifice for our sins. In Isaiah chapter 53, we see the famous passage. And go ahead and turn there because it's important for us to not just hear me say the words, you should see them with your eyes. Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 8, these verses, we want to see them, let them impact us. Isaiah predicting that the Messiah would come and be our sacrifice for sin. Isaiah 53, verse 5 The prophet says, but he, referring to the Messiah, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. In other words, the the discipline, the punishment we deserved was on him so we could be at peace with God. And with his stripes, we are healed. Now, why do we need that? Well, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. Why? For the transgression of my people was he stricken. During the yearly Passover festival, the Jewish people celebrated, a lamb was killed to remember God's deliverance on that first Passover for those who trusted 
in a lamb's blood to protect them. Every Jew knew what it meant when the word lamb was associated with sin. There was no confusion about this. A sacrifice, an offering, a substitute that the guilty might go free. This theme is taken up in the New Testament. In Acts 8.35, when Philip goes and talks to the Ethiopian eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch mentions that, he says, I'm reading this, these verses that I just read to you from Isaiah 53, you saw it with your own eyes. He was reading them with his own eyes, and he goes, who's, who's the prophet talking about here? And it tells us Philip told him about Jesus, told him about the cross. In 1 Peter 1.19, Peter says that Jesus is a lamb without blemish, without spot. He's the Passover lamb. Paul flat out calls Jesus our Passover in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. This is what all Christians believed after Jesus died and rose again. J.C. Ryle said this, he said, Christ is a Savior. He did not come on earth to be a conqueror or a philosopher or a mere teacher of morality. He came to save sinners. He's the Lamb of God, God's Lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. We read through John the Baptist, and to be fair, there's two things that we remember John the Baptist for. One, he baptized Jesus, John the Baptist. But what's the other one? That when he was in prison, he doubted, right? It's usually the two things we remember most about John. I don't think we appreciate this guy enough. Like, of all the teachers, priests, leaders of Israel, even Jesus' own disciples, he's the one guy that got Jesus correct from the start. Like he was the one guy who knew what was going on when nobody else did. That the Messiah was God the Son come to earth to die for our sins. Have you ever thought of how counter that idea was to the established religious ideology in Israel? Israel's earliest rabbis, some 400 years prior to John the Baptist, they believed that there would be two messiahs because they couldn't reconcile the prophecies. They read all the prophecies about the Messiah who would conquer, he'd be the son of David, and he would raise the people up, and he'd rule and reign, and, and yeah. And then they, they recognized and they understood the verses that were very clear that the Messiah is going to suffer and die for our sins and all these types of things. And so, because they couldn't reconcile the two, they taught that there would be two messiahs, one who suffered and died for the people's sins and one who would conquer Israel's enemies and reign as king, Messiah ben Joseph, the suffering Messiah, Messiah ben David, the conquering Messiah. Well, after a few centuries of suffering, God's people lost their way again they were tired of suffering. And so they dropped the whole suffering Messiah parts of Scripture. By the time Jesus came around, there was no teaching on a suffering Messiah. I mean, if you brought that up, you'd be like, that's not in the Bible. Because by then, they weren't reading their Bible. They were reading commentaries about the Bible. That's why Jesus, it was so weird for them when He taught because he would say, it is written, it is written, it is written. And they would look at each other and go, wow, he speaks with authority, because none of the rabbis did. They would say, well, you know, you, you know we look at this, this scripture, and Rabbi so-and-so says this, and the Talmud says this, and, and the Mishnah says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this, and, and they throw out all these ideas. But Jesus would say, God says this. It was so different. 
John the Baptist was very different too. He correctly declares the Messiah's identity and his mission from the start. And he's the only one who was doing it. And he does it here in everyone's hearing. Behold the Lamb of God. And then he explains the mission. The identity, he's the Lamb of God. He's going to die for our sins. But he explains the mission, which takes away the sin of the world. The, the phrase there, take away, it means to take up and carry off, to destroy or remove. You see something there, you're going to take it off from where it is, you're going to remove it away, and it's going to be gone. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's taken away? Notice he doesn't say the sins of the world. Singular, sin of the world. It's the, the idea is it's this all-encompassing idea of the world's sin. The word sin has multiple components to it. First, it can be used to describe our sin nature, you know, our disposition to sin, our sinfulness. I never had to teach any of my children how to lie. Like I never had to like, sit down with one of them and say, now listen, you know, when mom saw you doing that, this is what you needed to do. Here, I'll give you a scenario and you make up a lie. All right, da-da-da-da-da. Oh, no, 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 that's a bad lie. Let's, no, this is how you do it. No, I didn't have to teach them to be crafty, to lie, or anything. I didn't have to teach them when somebody took something that was theirs for them to see it across the room, even though I had no intention of playing with it at the time, to look over at them and say the four-letter word that's not allowed in my home. Mine! Never had to teach it to them. Never had to say, now listen, your little brother's new here. He doesn't understand how things work. You ever see him pick up one of your things? You shout from the opposite side of the room like bloody murder. Mine! <laughs> Never. No one had to teach me those things. We have a sinful disposition. Secondly, this word sin, it can be used to describe the specific shortcomings that we have, whether it's by things we commit or things that we don't do that we should do. We fall short of what's right what God's standard is. The word can be used to describe that. And thirdly, the word sin can be used to describe the guilt and the consequences we bear because of both our sinfulness and the actual sins that we either commit or because we didn't do something we should have done. This word sin, it, it encompasses all of those things. And so then when we hear this idea of the, this phrase, the sin of the world, John is saying that the Lamb of God, the Messiah, has come to remove all those components of sin through His sacrifice on the cross. That's why when you, if you hear someone teach biblically on salvation, they're going to talk about how salvation has three components to it. Number one, justification. Justification is the removal of our guilt for sin and all of its consequences. Amen? I'm not guilty before God anymore. I stand righteous before God. I've been declared righteous. I'm justified. No more consequences eternally for my sin. Secondly, we are justified. We're being sanctified. So our sanctification, which is the removal, the process of removing our sinful behavior, where Jesus is changing us by His Holy Spirit, making us more like Him. And then, of course, thirdly, our salvation in the future, our glorification, which will be the removal of our sinful disposition forever. Amen? John captures all of those things when he uses this phrase, the sin of the world. It's all dealt with. 
Don't let anyone ever tell you and say, well, you know, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he only died for our original sin, and you need to do this, 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 and this, and this to deal with your own personal sins. No, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all of it, everything that sin encompasses, that word encompasses. Now, who does this offering apply to? Well, it says the sin of the world. Vincent, when he is a Greek scholar, when he's talking about this word world, he said it's the sum total of human life in the ordered world that is apart from, alienated from, or hostile to God. So Jesus came to die for the sinful disposition, the sinful behavior, the consequences of sin that any individual bears if they meet these qualifications. They're apart from, alienated from, and hostile to God. Now, we know from the Bible, other scriptures says there's none good, no, not one, right? So every human being falls under the condemnation of sin, right? So if every human being falls under the condemnation of sin and therefore is part of the world, even as Ephesians 2 says, and we all walked according to this way, then who did Jesus come to be the Lamb of God for, and whose sin did He come to take away? Every one of those people. The sin of the world. This offering would not just be for every Jew separated from God by sin, but every human being separated from God by sin. And it's not just a select group, the elect. We can't, on the one hand, say, well, sin affects everybody, and then when the comparison is made as just as sin affected everybody, the gospel affects everybody, and say, well, that was only a select group of people. You can't do that. When you say that He's the Lamb of God, and He's going to take away the sin of the world, how much of the world was affected by sin? <laughs> All of it. <laughs> so that means all of those who were affected by sin, he came to deal with it. Amen. Isn't that awesome news? You and I can know that our sins are forever forgiven if we have received Christ. We can know it. That I'm not, as a regards, my guilt before God, it's gone. I'm forever forgiven. I can know also that I'm not stuck the way I am that I can please God now, that I can be changed. And even though I may be struggling and battling right now, His promise is He's going to finish what He starts. And that someday I'll be free from my sin nature all eternity. Hallelujah. <laughs> but there's one other side, because it's, since it's the sin of the world, you and I can tell others the same can be true for them too. You can have that too. Martin Luther said this, he said, sin has but two places where it may be. Either it may be with you so that it lies upon your neck or upon Christ, the Lamb of God. If now it lies upon your neck, you are lost. If, however, it lies upon Christ, you are free and will be saved. Take now whichever you prefer. The choice is yours. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name. John's testimony echoes John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus. Now, John the Baptist's declaration, it doesn't stop here because in verse 30, he identifies Jesus by another description. Not only is the Lamb of God, God's Lamb, Jesus is also the God-man. He says here in verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. This is he. In other words, Remember when I had that conversation yesterday? John's talking to everybody who's there. And 
especially his disciples would have been there for the conversation with the religious leaders yesterday. And he says, this is the guy I talked about yesterday. This is the guy I've been teaching you about since I started preaching, since I started my ministry. He says, Jesus is the one that I've been talking about. That after me, in other words, I'm here first. I was born first. My ministry came first. But after me, even though Jesus is born after me, his ministry will be after mine. Yet he will be a man that is preferred, held high, ranks higher than me. Because in reality, he was before me. He was here before, he existed before me. Now, we don't um, we have a certain respect for those who are older than us in our society. I would say it's probably dwindling <laughs> at present. But I think, generally, I think our culture still has some sense of that, that, you know, if you're older, you should respect. But we are certainly not like other cultures. Like in Asian cultures, I mean, you don't, I mean, if you're the older person, there's different words they use to talk to you than they would talk to someone who's their same age or younger than them. In Middle Eastern society, it's still a little bit like that, and especially back in Jesus' day. In John the Baptist's day, you would not defer ever to someone who was younger than you. You just didn't do it. And so for John to say that he's greater than me, be like, how can he be greater than you? You're six months older than him. I'm going to get in trouble now. So my wife is six months older than me. (laughs) She's a cradle robber. And she's turning 50 in six weeks. I respect her. But for six months, you better believe I'm going to be talking about, well, I'm not 50. (laughs) They would have never done that in that society. Never. You would always defer if you were the younger, if you would always take the lead if you were the older. And, uh, sorry, babe. <laughs> why, is my, why is my lunch overcooked, hon? <laughs> so for John to say, I may be older than the Messiah, I might even be the first voice you've heard, but I'm just the herald. Messiah is more important than me because in reality, he's the eternal God who existed before I did. That's why I defer to him. He's the God-man. I love here that John says it a little bit differently than John the gospel writer did earlier. He says, after me comes a man, not one, but a man. John the Baptist consistently taught that the Messiah was would be God become a man. That's not theological spin. There's no other way to understand his words. You see, the Gnostics taught that, you know, well, G- Jesus was a, just a regular dude, and then like a, a spirit came upon him, a Christ consciousness at his baptism, and then left him at his, you know, crucifixion. He's not God. He just was kind of had a special anointing from God. Jesus was not a ghost. He was not a vision or a, a consciousness didn't come upon him. Like the Gnostics taught, he was a real human being, the God-man, fully God, fully man. And again, John the Baptist is an impressive individual to understand all these truths. I mean, these are things that some believers today struggle with at times. And John's like, this is how it is. I think this is maybe why that Jesus called him the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. In Matthew eleven eleven, he said, there, I tell you the truth, there's none born among women greater than John the Baptist. You think, 
Maybe I'm wrong. I may be remembering incorrectly, but I think Moses and Elijah had moms. John the Baptist is greater than them? Yeah. He got things that no one else did. Well, John explains in verse 31 in this announcement, and I imagine maybe some people wondering, like, you didn't know your cousin was the Messiah, or you didn't tell us your cousin was the Messiah, like, till today? Why? And John explains, he goes, I didn't, I didn't know that. He says, I knew him not. Uh, it's a weird verb. It's really hard to translate into English, but it means I had not known him this way prior to recent events. So it's not like, you know, John and, and Jesus never hung out. Uh, we don't know how much they hung out, but it's not like they never hung out or didn't know each other prior to this. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying, he's not saying that I knew and I just didn't tell you. He's saying, I knew Jesus. And I think we're going to see from other scriptures, he knew that Jesus was special, but he didn't know he was the Messiah. He knew the Messiah's character. He knew his mission from the beginning of his ministry and explains that's why, oh, that's my mission, but that he should be made manifest, disclosed, or displayed to Israel. That's, that's what God called me to the ministry I have. That's why I'm out here baptizing with water. I'm out here doing this because God's called me to prepare you for the Lord and to identify the Messiah. And he comes. As the angel told his dad, Zacharias, to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord. Sometimes we can, because we don't take the Bible literally, we can mess up. If you go back and you read Luke chapter 1, like verse 16, it says there, he shall go before him, the Lord. Like we get there, oh, he's going to go before the Lord, like in the Lord's presence or, you know, in the Lord's power. Whatever. No, 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 he's going to go in front of the Lord. Like the Lord's coming behind him is what the angel said. And it says that he will prepare his people for the Lord. Not, again, in a spiritual idea. Oh, he's going to prepare the people so that they pray to the Lord again. No, no, no. He's going to prepare the people before the Lord comes. So that when the Lord comes, he can say, there he is. Stop listening to me and go follow him. God's here among us. That was what the angel said. My mission was to turn your hearts back to the Lord so that when God revealed the identity of the Messiah to me, I could reveal it to you and you'd be ready to follow him. And basically John's saying, well, here he is. Go follow him. I don't know how the people reacted to his words. I personally get the impression that no one followed Jesus. That may not be correct, but I get that impression because the next day, we see Jesus come walking by again, not to see John. He just sees him walking by, which is kind of weird. They're both in the desert. Like, what's Jesus doing? I don't know. <laughs> so we're like, well, yesterday didn't work. Let's try that again, John. And he sees him. He goes, behold, the Lamb of God. He says it again, shortens it. And now there's no entourage with Jesus. Like not, none of the other disciples. Is, I mean, maybe they could have followed Jesus that day, the day yesterday. But it mentions that only two of them got up and they just started walking behind Jesus. It's not like Jesus, again, he doesn't have a crowd with him as he's walking. He's walking by himself and finally he turns around and he's like, you guys need something? And they say, where are you staying, master? We'd like, to, we'd like to go wherever you're going. So I get the impression that despite John's declaration, which is pretty powerful, life kind of went on as it always had for the rest of that day. But that didn't change John, John's conviction. He was absolutely convinced Jesus was the Messiah he'd been preaching about. So what I do know is that after he makes this declaration, he then 
speaks to his disciples and gives them some more information. I know that because John the gospel writer was one of those disciples. He was there. So he heard the words. So the question either that they propose or that was unspoken and John the Baptist answered was this. What changed, John, from you not having a clue who the Messiah was, even though you know what he'd be like and what he'd do, you didn't know who he was, what had happened to change that to now being convinced is Jesus, your cousin? And he explains that to his disciples, including John the gospel writer in verse 32. And John bare record. So now he's giving unique, different testimony here. So again, I think he, he got with his disciples and he's going to say, let me give you some of my, my own direct knowledge of why I came to this conclusion and why I announced it to you. And he says this, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him, Jesus. This is an event that occurred at Jesus' baptism probably six weeks prior to this. He said, I saw it. The word saw here is not just like I looked up into the sky and saw something funky. He says, the word here means to observe something with continuity and attention. Often with the implication that what you're looking at is something unusual. I've participated in a lot of baptisms. I've never seen the sky open up revealing the insides of heaven and then a bird coming down from out of the inside of heaven and resting on the person and getting baptized. I've never had that happen. And I imagine prior to this, John the Baptist had not either. So this is an unusual event. One where he was fixed upon what in the world's going on. Is anyone else seeing this? I mean, he's just fixed upon it, you know? I saw the Spirit descending from heaven, from out of the heaven of God. Not just the sky, but the heaven of God. And he was in the bodily shape of a dove. And that dove then came and it abode upon Jesus. It rested, made its home on Jesus. A lot of times people ask me, like, why do we have the symbol of a dove? Why not the cross? I have no opposition to the cross. The cross is wonderful. It's where our sins are paid for. I'm so thankful for it. But Jesus, he said, I'm going away and I'm going to send someone to you. And he's going to be your helper from now on. And so the Holy Spirit is emblematic. You see all throughout the book of Acts, they preach the cross, but the thing, the theme that runs through it all is the Holy Spirit continuing Jesus' work through the church. And we want to be a church that not just holds to religious tenets, but that we're a living organism that the Holy Spirit's still working through. So, I mean, I have no, I'm not going to ever say, no, no cross, put a dove. That's not the point. The point is, though, is why do we have that? Is that's something we want to keep in the forefront of our mind, that we are a living body of Christ. We want to be driven and directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to keep moving forward and seeing new life. Now, the dove, why the shape of a dove? Um, well, the dove was the only bird you could sacrifice to the Lord in the Old Testament sacrificial system. It, could, it was a bird that could be made holy for use in worship. In the Old Testament, God often used a special anointing to identify those he had picked, uh, either for service or for rule. And sometimes this was just a prophet coming by and dumping oil on your head. Message from the Lord, you know, you should be the next king. See you later, bub. 
Sometimes it was way more dramatic, way more supernatural where God anointed an individual. God clearly, though, here leaves no doubt with Jesus for John. I mean, there's no way to to misunderstand this. No doubt at all. Jesus, weird ideas have come up over history over what happened in this moment when he was baptized. But you need to know that nothing new happened to Jesus to alter who he was. That's not what happened. Jesus did not become God at this moment or the Messiah at this moment, no. This was an anointing for the work God had called Jesus to do, just like God had done in the Old Testament. Just like any man needs to be or woman needs to be if they're going to do God's work. They need to be anointed by God's Spirit. You're not going to go out there in the arm of the flesh because you'll fail, right? So Jesus being anointed by the Holy Spirit here and the Spirit of God resting upon him marks the start of Jesus' public ministry and his identification as the Messiah to John. Why his identification? Because John had been given advance warning from God that that was how he'd recognize the Messiah, which is why he's giving this extra information to his disciples here, verse 33. He says, I didn't know him. Again, John reiterates, I didn't know Jesus was the Messiah before this. Now, as someone bring up this morning at first service, they said, what about Matthew 3, verses 13 and 14, when Jesus came to be baptized? And John says, why are you coming to me to be baptized? Uh, You should be baptized in me. When he says here, I didn't know him, he's not saying I didn't have a clue that it might be him. I don't think John, like, I don't think, given the circumstances of Jesus' birth, given the rumors going around, remember later in John, if you've read John, we will see that they accuse Jesus when he's clearly won the… If you lose the logical argument of someone, just start insulting them, right? Like that's the tactic, to win the fight, to win the argument. That's what they did with Jesus. They finally just turned him and said, yeah, we weren't born out of wedlock. That was the, the rumor around about Jesus. He was born out of an immoral relationship. So I would guess being Jesus' cousin that probably at some point… John's mom, Elizabeth, or someone else in the family probably said, you know, Jesus, he had a special birth, that that rumor is not true. So, I mean, he would know there was something special about Jesus, most likely. And again, growing up with Jesus, he'd probably very quickly know something's different about Jesus. I mean, no one's ever calling his name to wonder who did what when kids are crying, whatever. No one's going, Jesus, what do you do? Everyone's going, John. And I imagine possibility of when, you know, if they were playing like Israelites and Egyptians, that Jesus maybe went a little overboard sometimes. Man, Jesus, you almost drowned me in that river, man. Like, well, I'm just being biblical. I'm sure growing up, I mean, silly, but I'm sure growing up, he noticed like Jesus never gets in trouble. Like he doesn't do anything. And and it's not because he doesn't do anything. He does things wrong, doesn't get caught. He doesn't do anything wrong. I'm sure he noticed. I'm sure someone told him about his miraculous birth, especially because he shared his own miraculous birth. So he had an idea. But a prophet's certainty can't come from your feelings or your ideas. They need to come from a higher source, one that's beyond all question. And John explains to his disciples, he that sent me, God, who called me to baptize with water, he'd already told me, upon whom you shall see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which will baptize with the Holy Ghost. That's how John knew the dove was the Holy Spirit and not just a random bird in a wonky cloud pattern. You know, is, that, you know, is that the heaven I see opened up? No, man, it's just the sun. 
And it's, is, that, is that the Holy Spirit? No, it's just, it's just a bird. No, he knew. He knew that this was heaven being opened and it was the Spirit of God because God had told him when he sent him out to go baptize, this is how you'll know the Messiah. God told John that the Messiah would bring a special anointing with him to give to everyone and immersing into the Holy Spirit that would change our lives forever. The Bible says if you are born again that you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You've been baptized into the body of Christ. You've been anointed with power from on high. Isn't Jesus awesome? See, it's the Holy Spirit's work in us. That's why we don't have to stay the same. We aren't bound by sin anymore. The Holy Spirit helps us to overcome our sinful nature and to live in a way that pleases the Lord. And again, the other side of that is that God can use us to give a touch of himself to others as well as they see the Spirit of God working in us. And we can say, you can have that too. John says, he told me beforehand and then I saw it. I saw, verse 34, I saw and I bear record, this is my testimony, that this Jesus, this one Jesus, he's the Son of God. I wonder maybe if that's why John and Andrew the next day when John said, behold the Lamb of God, they said, we got to go this time. I wonder if after pulling them aside and saying, you know, this is how I know it's true, that they went, okay. And the next day when they saw Jesus and he said, behold the Lamb of God, they said, love you, John, but we got to go follow our Lord. When John utters these words to his disciples, that this is the Son of God, there's Almost a finality to those words. The still mood that comes over a courtroom when the, the witness in court says something profound or important and everybody goes, oh, that's big. Well, John the Baptist steps down from the podium, his witness done. John, our gospel writer, says, told us Jesus is the eternal word. God become a man, the light and the hope of humanity. But I'm not the only one who says it. I'm not the only one who believes that. I'm not the only one who saw it. John the Baptist saw the glory too. And so our first witness exits the stand. And my question to you this morning is, what will you do with his record? What will you do with his record? Say, well, I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know. You're right. You weren't, but he was. He was. And that makes him more qualified than you or me to provide direct knowledge of Jesus' identity. So what are you going to do with his record? Will you believe it or will you reject it? As the worship team comes up and they're going to lead us in a song and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We hold these elements in our hand. What we're saying is, I believe your record, John. I agree. Jesus is the Son of God and I believe he's taken away all my sin. And then we take a moment to remember how Jesus did that. To think on the cross, to tell him thank you again, and to kind of recommit ourselves to following him wherever he leads. So if you're here today and you've never made that decision to believe John's record, this is not just something to do. It's not just something to say, well, yeah, I'm at a Christian church today, so I'll go along with their rituals. Or maybe, well, I grew up and this is what the church does. This is not just a ritual. It's a very personal thing. 
Because all of us, if we partake of this, we're making the same declaration. I believe your record, John. I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and he's taken away all my sin. If you've never made that decision, or maybe if you've kind of walked away from that decision, or you haven't been living in it, and as I pray right now for God to ready our hearts for this time, I'm going to give you an opportunity to make that decision, to say, I believe. So Lord, we do surrender this time to you now to remember, to reflect and think about your great love and your sacrifice for us. And of course, all that you accomplished because of who you are, God's lamb who's taken away all of our sin. Lord, we're so grateful for that. And we just want to worship you and remember you now. So settle our hearts for whatever we're thinking about, all the things that might distract us, things that are frustrating us right now or things that we're worried about, things that we're angry about. Settle our hearts that we might just kind of focus in on you, consider you. And then with every eye closed, if you're here this morning and you're making the decision to believe, would you just lift your hand? Because I'd like to pray with you as you make that decision. Jesus said, if you confess me before man, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. So if you're receiving Christ right now, believing John's record, just lift your hand high because I'd like to pray with you as you are making that decision. Anybody this morning before we enter into this time of communion with the Lord? Well, Lord, we love you. Thank you, and we now set apart this time for you. In Jesus' name, amen.